the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, and a very pleasant good afternoon. Five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. here on this Tuesday, final day of July. August begins tomorrow. Imagine that. And as we welcome you to today's program, a lot on our agenda this evening. As you know, the president is currently in Tampa, Florida, holding a rally there. He's talking largely about successes, milestones in the administration, certainly the report about the gross domestic product being at 4.1 percent, numbers we haven't seen. And my goodness, five, six-something years now, maybe even more. And along with that, of course, discussing trade and tariffs. We're going to talk with syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek a little bit later on in this hour about that very issue. What of the issue of trade wars? Is it healthy for the country? Is the president crazy for engaging in this Or is he crazy like a fox? We'll get to that conversation with Bob Zadek coming up a little bit later on in this first hour. Let's talk first, though, about weather, temperatures, and fire. President Trump today declaring a state of emergency here in California. And we continue to battle raging wildfires both to the north of us and to the south. Federal aid now coming to California to supplement state and local efforts. The declaration will authorize FEMA to coordinate disaster relief efforts in our region as well. So far, the car fire in Shasta County, north of us, has burned over 80,000 acres and remains only 5% contained. Other wildfires, as you're aware, continue burning in the state, including the Ferguson Fire near Yosemite National Park. A lot of this, of course, is the product of drought, certainly warmer temperatures. And during these months of July, August, September, we traditionally see an increase in temperatures around our state, not only increasing the risk of wildfires, but also the risk of brownouts. We have a very fast and rapid growing population here in California, and whether or not the grid has been able to keep up with not only the increase in population, construction, but Everybody with every imaginable portable and plug-in-the-wall electronic device you can think of. Well, of course, all this means bigger demand, particularly during peak temperatures. That means possibly the need to engage in so-called rolling brownouts in order to make sure that power remains on. Let's get some look about what you can do to help reduce energy consumption during this critical time of the year. Matt Dudersberg joins us, CEO of Ohm Connect. Matt, thank you for taking time to be with us today. Let's talk a bit about um, energy use here in California. I would imagine that a big part of that during the peak warm season is folks heading home and saying, too hot in here and flipping the AC on. That's exactly it. A lot of people, as they get home and they turn on their AC, that starts to drive a peak in demand during just in the evening hours, usually around 7 to 9 p.m. Coincidentally, that peak also coincides specifically when solar starts to go offline. So we see a really big spike 
of energy consumption right in the evening hours of the day. And it's interesting because traditional thinking might be, well, during the day, people are at work, factories are working, computers are turned on, office lights are turned on, company air conditioning is up and running. But you're really indicating that the bigger spike relates to home use in the evening. And I'd never thought about the fact, but the impact on the the grid, I mean, during the day, you've got a lot of that solar that is not going into storage batteries, is being sold back into the grid. And of course, at sunset, all that disappears. Exactly. And you're absolutely right, Craig, that uh, about five to ten years ago, all of the load was during the middle of the day. Commercial um, usually, usually uses more than residential in general. Um, however, that has really shifted, especially in California, because of all the solar coming online. We have a ton of solar that really mitigates that need in the middle of the day but it doesn't solve the problem in the evening hours. And, and, you know, part of the challenge there, too, Matt, is not only do we come home and flip on the A.C. because the house has been closed up all day and it's like a hot box, but then I'm thinking about some other normal day-to-day activities like, okay, time to put dinner on, so we turn on our, our big fancy oven, or along with that, busy families, hey, let's throw a load of laundry in the washing machine and later on run the dryer as well. So it turns out that three of the biggest energy consumers in our house, the range, the heater, or the dryer rather, and your air conditioning, oftentimes are all running simultaneously. Exactly. And often you don't need to run them at that time. It's just most convenient. So you know, is there ways to do it more intelligently with balance of the grid? So that is that is a big question we have. All right. So walk us through, if you would, from your perspective, Matt, what are some of the things that we should be doing that will help reduce energy consumption in the evening when everybody gets home to reduce the possibility of rolling brownouts? Absolutely. The, the, some of the easiest things, and, and it's debatable whether these are easy or not, are uh, delaying the charging of your devices, which is crazy enough, but your phone doesn't need to be at 100% all the time. So during those evening hours, maybe not charging your phone, your computer. Um, Another big piece is, do you turn on the AC at 75 degrees as opposed to 69 degrees? As much as those six degrees make it a little bit cooler in the home, um, it's actually much better for the grid if you leave it at 73, 74, 75 degrees. Um, the delaying the start of the appliances is very important. So if we can wait till just 10 p.m., we start to see massive uh, balancing of the grid as appliances get shifted from being used at 7 to 8 p.m. to 9 to 10 p.m. Um, and eventually, hopefully, we envision a world where all devices, uh, you know, your washing machine, your dishwasher, are being run concurrently with grid needs. Uh, that is the future vision. All right. In the meanwhile, there are some other things that folks can do to help uh, not only reduce their energy consumption, but also do a better job when it comes to helping to monetize some of those energy conservation efforts. In that regard, tell us how Ohm Connect can help. Yeah, absolutely. When you sign up with Ohm Connect, we actually pay you when you reduce your electricity during one or two hours a week. Well, I like that plan. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, generally, we have events from 7 to 8 or 8 to 9 p.m. when the, the grid is most needed. When we actually have an event, um, all of our users reduce simultaneously, and we don't actually need a le- extra energy from the grid. So we're able to offset a lot of this electricity and sell it back into the energy market. The energy market pays us, of which we pass all the savings back to the user. 
All right, folks want to get more information about that. Certainly in California, we're, we're very conscious about our energy consumption, and we're probably singularly the largest energy consumer in all 50 states. So if they want to get more details, what do they do? Yeah, they just go to omconnect.com, O-H-M-C-O-N-N-E-C-T. Now, one other final question for you. We oftentimes uh, hear uh, talk about uh, flex alerts and things of this sort. In terms of getting a sense of, gee, there's really going to be added stress on the grid. I need to be extra cautious. I I think ideally watching the weather and seeing that, oh, we're coming into a hot spell here. It's going to be in the upper 90s is a good indicator. Any other ways in which we can become better informed consumers? Yeah, so flex alerts are provided by a separate entity called the California ISO. These events don't necessarily always happen when it's the hottest days of the year. In fact, the past couple of weeks, we've seen the flex alerts actually occur, and we've seen really high prices on the grid because there is a shortage of gas in the south. So San Diego, SoCal region, we didn't have enough gas to power the power plants, and we started to see massive constraints on the grid. The grid really had a small reserve margin, only 2 to 3%. Um, which is really dangerous. And so these were the times when the grid was really needed. So um, Ohm Connect helps provide people with information about when uh, to reduce electricity. Our Ohm hours often reflect flex alerts. So we had a bunch of Ohm hours last week um, where users were earning quite a bit of money because they were saving during these, these peak times. And you don't get much resistance to that? I'm sorry, bad, bad insider electronics joke. My, my engineer here is laughing as well. <laughs> that, is the, that is the underlying reason we used ohm in the word ohm connect. I love it. Well, I, I didn't, didn't mean to, uh, to um, bring it up, but I'm glad I did. Hey, Matt, thank you so much for the insights today. You can get more information online at ohmconnect.com. That's ohmconnect.com. We all want to be uh, good stewards of... Uh, natural resources, and, of course, electricity, you know, and unless you're living out in the back 40 and don't care, we all rely upon it, I'd like to think that it helps keep this radio station on the air as well. So uh, do your do your part and help to uh, reduce energy consumption, particularly during those peak hours. There is Matt Dustenberg, CEO of Ohm Connect. It's 515. Let's connect right now with uh, Michael Bennett. See how much traffic resistance. Oh, my goodness, the jokes just keep coming. How much traffic resistance is out there? We find out next with our good buddy Michael in the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. We're here at 520, and uh, the president, as we mentioned at the top of the hour tonight, is uh, currently in a big rally in Tampa, Florida. And, of course, part of that rally, cheering himself on, cheering on the U.S. economy. During the rally tonight, the president calling it the best economy in the history of the country. Now that we have the best economy in the history of our country, this is the time to straighten out the worst trade deals ever made by any country on Earth. They are the worst. And probably are going to make it back, and it's going to be made back faster than anybody would know. But we haven't been treated right. We're going to make it back nice and quickly. All right. Well, a lot of fact in that, probably a bit of hyperbole. Let's get some insights to this topic, not only in terms of is there a time when trade wars are good and healthy? Is this essentially a mess that the president has been in, has inherited and has to kind of come in as the cleanup crew? And what about the historical constitutional responsibilities of who makes such decisions over tariffs and trades? 
Joining me now is the host of the nationally syndicated Bob Zadek Show, best-selling author Bob Zadek. The program, by the way, can be heard every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. So if you're kind of tired of the uh, hyperbole you hear from the talking heads on Sunday morning TV shows and want to go a little bit deeper into some really good intelligent talk and great analysis from Class A, Guests, you want to catch Bob's show again Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. on 860 a.m., The Answer. Meanwhile, Robert, is always great to have you with us. Craig, thanks so much, and thanks for your kind comments about my show. I sure do appreciate it. So now, Craig, the president gets so up and I, talks about the best economy in our history. How much of that is hyperbole? And what about this issue of trade? President Trump did not earn his stripes as a historian So let's not talk about Trump's historical accuracy. We're going to get, you're going to get me very aggravated. The audience will be infuriated and it doesn't move the ball down the court very much. Let's talk about, and, and by the way, as you know, Craig, as I've said it before on your show, when it comes to Donald Trump, the Donald Trump survival kit is very simple. Ignore what he says, pay attention to what he does. So uh, that's the rule. That's my rule in discussing Donald Trump's behavior. Now, with that introduction, Craig, I'm all yours. How can I help? All right. Let's get down into this issue then of of trade. And before we talk about the nuts and bolts in relationship to uh, dollars and cents, let's talk about a little bit of historical perspective. It is my understanding, Bob, that Article 1, Section 8, Paragraph 1 of our lovely Constitution specifically empowers Congress to get into debates, or not debates, but engage in negotiations, rather, over trade and tariffs with some reciprocal trade empowerment given to the president, but again, sort of at the at the control and oversight of Congress. Is that correct? Of course that's correct, Craig. You know your Constitution so well. All the times that I've been on your show, whenever you have stated a constitutional principle, you have stated it with perfection, and you were right there in what you said. So as Congress has, down through the years, historically delegated some of its trade authority to the executive branch. In your perspective, Bob, has that always been a win for the U.S., or is the the surrendering of some of those powers potentially risky here when we look at the overall health of these agreements? Congress, over time, has made a calculation, and the calculation is the less they have to make a decision, the more likely they are to get reelected. And since Congress only exists for the sole purpose of getting reelected, that's their only goal in life. If they didn't want to get reelected, why bother running for office to begin with? It certainly was not to govern. So therefore, since their goal is to get reelected, the best thing they can do is to have somebody else make the decisions. Somebody else, i.e. the president. So over time, Congress has become an unequal rather than co-equal branch of government by delegating so much of their painful decision-making to the president because let the president take the heat and Congress gets reelected. So President Trump, in this recent round of tariff warfare, President Trump was able to raise tariffs 
not because he had plenary tariff-raising power, but only because he was given by Congress the power to raise and to deal with tariffs for reasons of, these are the key words, national security. TSA exists for national security. Wiretapping of citizens exists for national security. It is the safe harbor for an overreaching government. No one, you can't go wrong if you do something in the name of national security. And the president is allowed to declare, okay, importing steel from Canada threatens our national security because Canada is about to invade us. So the reasoning goes. Therefore, Trump can impose tariffs on our closest uh, country friend and most important trading partner, Canada. And Congress gave the president that power. So you're exactly right. Congress should be the one to determine tariff and other trade policy, but they have ceded that power to the president. And one more comment, if, if I may, on the issue of tariffs. Uh, Congress, there was a, a, an amendment to a bill in Congress that Mitch McConnell was asked to have a floor vote on. And the vote was proposed, I believe, by Senator Rand Paul. And there was widespread congressional support where uh, it was proposed that Congress be given a period of time to confirm or to deny the president's use of tariffs for national security in a case-by-case basis. And Mitch McConnell, since his job is to protect senators from ever having to vote, did not put it up to a vote. So Mitch McConnell lacked the guts to allow Congress to seize back even a tiny bit of their tariff power so that congressmen, senators can hide and never vote. It was infuriating. And, you know, the, the sad thing about all of this is, historically, the United States, at least up until the 20th century, had been in a protectionist mode. In fact, I think there was a time during the Civil War that some of the uh, tariffs that were implemented by Lincoln were uh, largely to help support uh, the Civil War effort, but the tariffs were as high as 44%. Clearly, during that period of time, there wasn't a lot of import-export trade going on with the United States. But it really wasn't until the the, the early days of the Great Depression or the early days of the presidency of, of FDR with the so-called Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act was signed, granting the power to the president to start negotiating some of these trade agreements that came in. And it, and it sounds from what I've read, Bob, that, that the real stickler came post-World War II, let's help rebuild the world. We need to have open, fair trade going on with certainly Europe. Japan became eventually a key trading partner with the, partner with the United States, and it seemingly has gone downhill since then. Craig, you used the phrase fair trade. All trade, if it's free, it is fair. Any trade that's made less free by tariffs or quotas, which is another trade-impairing tool of government, is per se unfair. There is no such thing as a fair tariff or fair uh, import quotas. Uh, Tariffs per se, per se, 
are unfair in that a tariff is a tax on you and I and all of our listeners out there. It is a tax, and we are taxed only because we choose to buy, of our own volition, with our own dollars, we choose to buy a sweatshirt or sneakers made overseas instead of an American sweatshirt or sneakers. For that heinous act, we have to pay a tax. In other words, the government is denying us the freedom to choose the product we wish to buy at the price the seller wishes to sell it. What could be more, what could be a more basic freedom than allowing me to buy what I want from a willing seller at the price that seller is willing to pay? Well, even some of the the nomenclature here is disingenuous, is it not? And I ask that question, Bob, because we hear, as you alluded to a moment ago, talk about increasing tariffs on Canadian steel, increasing uh, tariffs on Chinese goods. And and it sort of leads one to believe, well, the Chinese are going to have to pay more now to get their goods into the United States, or uh, the Canadians will have to pay more in order to sell steel here. But at the end of the day, isn't the one that ends up having to really pay more is the the end product user the buyer meaning the consumer aren't we actually the ones that have to suffer paying higher tariffs as opposed to the canadians or the jet or the chinese of course craig in fact i was going to correct you but you corrected yourself you said we we assess a tariff on china no we don't assess a tariff on china we assess assess what amounts to a sales tax on the buyers in the U.S. of Chinese goods. Uh, It's a tax on Americans for the bad act of buying a product made in another country. And it is bad for everybody. Let us stipulate that the world economy, as well as the, the economy of every country, is better off if everybody gets to buy products at the lowest price possible then consumers, the only people who matter are us consumers, us voting citizen consumers. We get to have the benefit of the lowest cost consumer products, which means we have more money for other things like college and recreation, which means the quality of our life collectively goes up. A tariff means the quality of our life goes down. We have to spend more money for everything, which means less money for what we want to spend it on, because cars and everything else on Earth gets to be more expensive. And in a zero-sum game where we have tariffs and counter-tariffs, everybody on Earth ends up paying more for the same product. How could that possibly make any sense to anybody? We're going to pause on that point. If you've tuned in a bit late, we're visiting today with syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek. His program Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. Bob, by the way, is the author of a number of books. His latest seller is called Secret Sauce, the Founder's Original Recipe for Limited American Democracy. You can order copies of the book as well as get information about podcasts and Bob's weekly show by going online to his website at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. So if protections kind of worked 
pre-World War II, certainly the United States as the leading, if not singular, industrialized nation to the level at which we functioned at that time. That be the case, and most countries were largely pretty independent. That seemed to kind of work. But in a post-World War II environment, and particularly with the move toward globalization that we've seen over the ensuing decades, is it even possible to engage in trade protectionism anymore, or does it simply mean collective ruination economically for all of us? We're going to explore that equation as we continue our visit with best-selling author and radio talk show host Bob Zadek. A time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. 532, let's get caught up on traffic for you right now. We'll head back over to the KFAX Traffic Center and say hello once again to Michael Bennett. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Representatives of Japan, the European Union, Canada, and Mexico are meeting in Geneva to discuss the possibility that the United States could enact tariffs on automobile imports into the states. They are expected to discuss how to head off possible tariffs and retaliation if the tariffs are put into effect. The Trump administration has been studying the possibility of tariffs on auto imports with a decision expected in the near future. Bill Zimp for NBC News Radio. All right. Well, that gives you more perspective on sort of the uh, the battle of words and uh, warfare of minds here as we discuss trade, trade tariffs. I mean, I think certainly uh, the president has a valid point that there is an imbalance of trade. There has long been an imbalance of trade. I wonder if maybe abrogating most of our trade and negotiating authority from Congress, where historically the founding fathers said it should be, and instead they turning all that power largely over to the president. Now you've got one guy making all the deals, and as we've seen with the current imbalance, it's not boded well. And, of course, now we're seeing countries that are coming back and forth saying, okay, you do this, we'll do that. What does all of this long-term potentially mean? Is the president, as I suggested earlier, crazy to engage in this or crazy like a fox? We're visiting today with best-selling author, nationally syndicated radio talk show host Bob Zadek. He is a lawyer by profession, and you can catch his show every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. Always has engaging guests dealing with current-day topics, taking a look at not only the historical and constitutional angles, but most importantly, giving you an opportunity to really go deep and get the story behind the story and many of the burning topics that are of capturing headline news. Bob, let's talk more about this notion of globalization versus being in a more of an independent nation. Certainly, the landscape of the world in which we all live has changed dramatically since the end of the Second World War. And I have to wonder if even the old-style sense of, of um, protectionism that we engaged in uh, historically in the United States really even could serve us anymore, even if we wanted it to. Craig, protectionism is a mighty loaded word. When you use, and when the public and when the politicians use the word protectionism, who exactly are they protecting and at what cost? I dare say that protectionism is protecting an industry in the United States which cannot manufacture a product as cheaply and as efficiently as somebody else can outside the United States. So we are protecting the bad guy, the inefficient, high-cost manufacturer. We're protecting that person from competition. Imagine uh, 
we are saying competition is bad. What is the competition all about? We have manufacturers all over the globe competing for one thing, to give you and I what we want at the lowest possible price. Darn it, I want that competition. I want nobody to be protected from that battle because the winner gets to sell me what I want at the lowest possible price. So protectionism itself is a loaded word. It's protecting the loser from being bested by somebody who does the manufacturing task better. And then we talk about a trade war. Well, war, who is the victim of the war? The answer is not China, not Chinese manufacturers. It is American consumers. Because the one absolute in a trade war, everything costs more. Now, Craig, you and I will pay more for everything made out of steel or aluminum. What benefit do we derive in our everyday lives as Americans? What benefit do we derive to justify the cost of paying more for every single thing we buy? I think you'll find we get no benefit. So the deal is we get to pay more for the same product with no corresponding benefit to us. Now, the benefit may be some inefficient steel manufacturer or some worker who gets paid more than the market value of that worker's services. They benefit for sure. But frankly, Craig, I'm not that happy about benefiting either one of those two players and having to pay out of my own pocket for the privilege. Well, and there seems to be perhaps also juxtaposed against this notion of what global trade looks like against uh, domestic trade, uh, some double-mindedness. And, and, I, and I make that observation, Bob, because I think at the end of the day, if we took a survey here, everyone to a person listening would say, well, of course I believe in free markets. I, I don't want to have to go to Oregon and pay one price and to California and pay another. I want to be able to have the right to see that there's an ebb and flow based on supply and demand and uh, allow myself as the consumer the opportunity to choose which product, which price best suits me to allow product manufacturers and companies to to engage in in free markets and that they can now openly and and evenly compete certainly at the national level we level we say we want that that's always been the model here it served us well for many many years and we don't want to change that and yet it seems as if we're saying we want that at the domestic level but internationally oh no there we want to be able to put in controls and price restrictions if we started arguing price restrictions here in the United States domestically every would stand up and say, wait a minute now, but why do we think that it's okay globally? You know, Craig, you're exactly right, and the area of trade is so misunderstood uh, both by politicians and, regretfully, by much of the general media who does not have economics training. They are their level of financial and economic literacy is unfortunately pretty low because they study journalism, not economics. One little vignette, one little, two examples will show you how pointless it is to talk about trade deficits. Craig, I predict you shop some of the time in Safeway. I'm taking a wild guess, but it's probably the case. I will also take a guess 
that you sell very little to Safeway. Therefore, you have this profound trade imbalance with Safeway. Does that make you crazy, or do you love it? Because Safeway does what they do best, get products into your shopping cart, and you do what you do best, which is earn your living so that you have the money to pay Safeway a price you're willing to pay. Every one of us has a trade imbalance. Uh, I dare say you have a trade imbalance with your dentist. Now, the dentist doesn't buy that much stuff from you, I suspect. Putting it further, let's take state by state. How would it be in California if there was a tariff on out-of-state coal? Because California doesn't have coal mines. But we use some coal, perhaps not a lot, but we use some. But how would it make any sense for California to say, we are importing too much coal from Appalachia? Therefore, let us develop our own domestic coal industry. We probably could, if we dug deep enough, find some coal, but it would be so gosh darn expensive. So we do what we do best, grow stuff. Appalachia does what they do best. They don't have a place to put farms, but they can, they can mine coal. That concept in economics is called comparative advantage. Everybody does what they do best, and they take what they do best, make it at a cheap price, and sell it to somebody else in exchange for what the other counterparty does best. That's what makes everything so cheap. When you have trade, the, the bias is, Donald, and when you have tariffs, Donald Trump says, no, you must buy from somebody who makes it not quite as good and not quite as cheaply because we want to protect them. How absurd is that, Greg? Well, and as you're suggesting, part of the problem here is we have bureaucrats and politicians in Washington, D.C. that know a lot about politics. They know a lot about bureaucracy, but none of them have, for the large part, largest degree, uh, economic degrees. And so there's a fundamental disconnect here between the notion. I mean, it, it, it sounds good to pound your fist on the desk and beat your chest and say, we're going to protect the U.S. worker, make sure that nobody ever interferes with him again. And yet the story behind the story um, is a far more economically complicated one, and the effort toward protectionism may ultimately punish the people that, uh, most importantly, we should be thinking about here, and that is for any business, you need to think about the consumer first, what his needs are, what uh, he's willing to pay for your product, what the market will bear, and those seem to be parts of the equation here that are largely missing. Do you think at the end of the day, and I, I underscore Bob, your your observation at the top of the hour, and that is we have to be careful here, not necessarily in trying to uh, draw conclusions based on what the president says, but rather on what the president does. Do you think at the end of the day, potentially a lot of this rhetoric, uh, once everything kind of settles down, will wake up all of these countries that have been trading partners of ours for many years with the trade imbalance to say, you know what, maybe enough is enough. If the United States is going to start getting real serious about this, and let's face it, 
Like it or not, we remain the number one consumer market in the world. China's certainly catching up with us, but we're still number one. Do you think at the end of the day this is potentially all going to settle down, all of the rhetoric and the noise that's catching news headlines at 6 o'clock will all kind of fade away, and at the end of the day we'll wind up with more reasonable trade agreements that perhaps will be true and open in relationship to uh, TPP, GATT, and NAFTA? You know, Craig, part of me, a big part of me, thinks that you're exactly right. Um, I kind of think, I have to be profoundly optimistic. I'm willing to give people all over the benefit of the doubt. That's just my psychological orientation. And if Trump is using bombast and threats about tariffs and trade war only to bring the other side to the table, to end up with better trade treaties, to end up, as he said, with the president of the European Union just uh, late last week, no tariffs anywhere. If that's the end game, I owe the guy a huge thank you, and he gets profound credit. If he is using that as a tactic, then he deserves credit and he gets my respect however if he really believes what he says and his the thing about trump is i don't want to psychologize it's not what i do for a living but trump becomes so unpredictable there hasn't been a politician like him for maybe forever therefore he's unpredictable and people get concerned and he may be it may be a very clever and successful tactic if it's a tactic as i said then at the end of the day he ends up negotiating a good healthy low or no tariff trade treaty and he deserves credit if he really believes what he says and it's not a bluff and he's going to go all the way it's mighty mighty scary because nobody ever wins a trade war. Nobody. Yeah, as you point out, there are uh, losers plenty in a scenario like that, and the biggest loser overall becomes the consumer. Time will be the one factor here that will play out and will ultimately tell us on what end of the equation all of this sort of settles down into. And it'll be fascinating to see what happens. To be sure, one thing, we've got a dialogue going concerning trade imbalance in this world today that is, let's face it, historically unprecedented. Our thanks to Bob Zadek, nationally syndicated talk show host, best-selling author. Bob's got a lot of great insights amusing on these and other topics. You can catch him on his weekly show, The Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. I'll mention, too, that if you want to check out Bob's blog, podcast, get information about more resources, and uh, keep on top of what's going on on his show, you can check him out online, bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K, bobzadek.com. Bob, as always, thanks so much for the time. Privilege to visit with you. All right, we're here at uh, eh, just about 11 away from the hour. Let's get a look at uh, what's going on traffic-wise. And for that, we turn to Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, welcome back. 552 here on the Tuesday edition of Lifeline. Well, Supreme Court nominee Brent Kavanaugh making the rounds on Capitol Hill. He's been taking time to meet with individual senators in preparation for his future confirmation. Today, he met with Iowa Senator Joni Ernst. And after that meeting, she gave two thumbs up following the meeting indicated that, quote, Kavanaugh is highly qualified justice, and she believes that he is committed to upholding the U.S. Constitution. Talking more about this particular candidate and his qualifications, we're joined by constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, and as always, Counselor, great to have you with us. Always a pleasure. So, uh, Brett Kavanaugh making his case as he makes his way uh, in the rounds and visiting with individual senators before the um, the bigger um, confirmation hearing. No data for that has been set, to my knowledge. But meanwhile, knowing more about him is probably something that would be good for all of us. Tell us more. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, his his background is uh, just sort of like an open book. Uh, you know, unlike some nominees in the past that have had very limited opinions on uh, issues of concern uh, by many from the left and the right. Uh, he has a, a, just a wide uh, track record, a uh, very broad track record, covering a number of different issues. Like, uh, for example, uh, on the pro-life issue, um, he, uh, and his, there was a, an, a, uh, an immigrant, a minor, who was uh, pregnant, and uh, she wanted to have an abortion. And uh, she was uh, being held because she would come, come over uh, illegally and uh, was in that 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 uh, phase of of, um, of vetting, if you will, and uh, Kavanaugh wrote uh, in the minority opinion saying, "Hey, the government has permissible interests in favoring fetal life, protecting the best interests of a minor, and refraining from facilitating abortion." Calling the majority's approach a quote radical extension of the Supreme Court's abortion jurisprudence end quote. Uh, so that that's a for those who have a respect for the government's um, role in, in uh, respecting human life, um, that's a, definitely a positive. And uh, he also, though, is not a, uh, in terms of free speech, you definitely see some, some boundaries and limitations. In Mahoney versus Doe, that was a case dealing with a pro-life activist who wanted to have a chalk message on the street outside the White House. And in that case, Kavanaugh stated, quote, um, I add these few words simply because I do not want... Uh, the fog of the First Amendment doctrine to make its case seem harder than it is. No one has a First Amendment right to deface government property. No one has a First Amendment right, for example, to spray paint the Washington Monument or smash windows of a police car. So he's, uh, you know, he's also shown that you know, he, though I appreciate the First Amendment, um, he doesn't see it as just a a radical absolutist um, tool that people can use to uh, thwart uh, reasonable limitations on expression. Well, you know, we've had these discussions in the past as well, Then, insofar as wanting to defend uh, to the nth degree uh, First Amendment rights, there are reasonable expectations and limitations vis-a-vis you don't get up in the middle of a crowded movie theater and yell fire and say, no, I was just exercising my freedom of speech as people trample all of each other and, you know, people get injured. So there's always been that reasonable expectation that there are certain restrictions or limits. Yes, and, and it's, it's nice to have a, a Supreme Court justice uh, that understands the, the full scope of, of uh, the First Amendment and, and, and what's involved when it comes to free speech. And so it's, uh, they, they, they have the capacity not to be dogmatic 
in one angle of it, but to see the big picture and apply it uh, properly. And he seems to demonstrate that very clearly. He could have allowed that, for example, if, if he had pro-life passions, he could have allowed that to to cause him to go more radical and, and say, yes, people have a right to deface property so long as X, Y, and Z. Um, but that was, but he didn't, and I think that's a, definitely a good thing. Of course, there was also uh, the Newdow versus Roberts case, Craig, where uh, he uh, ruled, uh, you know, in favor of inauguration prayer, and uh, he actually went so far, went beyond uh, the other two judges on the panel, justices, and and uh, and rejected the claims on the merits uh, because, quote, those long-standing practices do not violate the establishment clause as it has been interpreted by the Supreme Court, which is praying at the presidential inauguration. So he's really keen at looking at um, histor- history, the nation's history, tradition, what's rooted there, and helping keep the court uh, sane and reasonable as it uh, looks at new issues uh, moving ahead. Well, and certainly historically, I think that interpreters, and you can speak to this better than I can, interpreters of the Constitution that have tried to gain a greater understanding into the mindset. You know, if we find an area that the Constitution seems to be silent on or doesn't go into any degree of specificity that would be necessary to rule whether or not a particular uh, law, for example, was constitutional or not, there, there's a lot of illuminance that can be had from things like uh, the Mayflower Compact and the Federal papers and, and, and other extra-constitutional documents. Right. I'm not suggesting that they should should somehow overshadow the, the, the core of the Constitution. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of somebody who believes kind of much like the Bible. The Bible interprets the Bible. The Constitution interprets the Constitution. But sometimes if we're trying to get into the heads of the Founding Fathers, uh, looking at some of those extra-constitutional records can be helpful, can they not? Oh, they certainly can, and uh, of course the Constitution is the, is the final uh, say, but we, just like you said, though, sometimes um, there's a question of, okay, what's the original intent here? What's the context of the text we're talking about? Uh, looking at what was written and established and, and viewed and accepted at that time uh, by those who wrote the, the, the language of the Constitution or the amendments at, at issue, yeah, that's that's it's so valuable, and and uh, he really he gets that uh, along with uh, uh, several other judges on the Supreme Court, and that's a good thing. And and, and you know certainly from a from a um, theological standpoint, the importance of contextual proper contextualization that's easy for me to say uh, is critical. In other words, uh, in looking at what is being said, by whom, to whom, why it's being written, the circumstances under which it's being written can oftentimes help to. Uh, again, broaden and deepen our understanding of what that original intent is. These are going to be water cooler conversations that will be happening over the course of uh, the next many weeks and until Congress comes back into session and sets a, a firm date for these confirmation hearings. In order to help people better understand who this candidate is, tell us about a special resource the Pacific Justice Institute is making available. Yes, Craig, and uh, we did a lot of independent research. We put it together, made it very succinct, so it's not pages and pages. It's four pages, but it's a great summary, fantastic summary of Brett Kavanaugh and specific cases that he decided with with quoted opinions, quoted statements, so you can really understand really where he's coming from. I think overall people are going to be uh, fairly pleased with this, as they see how he thinks and, and processes a, a host of issues, uh, many of them controversial issues when it comes to freedom of religion, uh, free speech, the sanctity of human life. Uh, but I think they'll find it, uh, even the Second Amendment, I think they'll find it very eye-opening. And, and they can find it on our website 
pji.org, uh, uh, pji.org, and uh, just click up at the very top, get, um, get help, and you'll see this is one of our many resources. All right, and again, you can go to pji.org to uh, get a copy of that resource that essentially is some insights into the background and uh, previous decisions and writings by Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. Six o'clock from KFAX San Francisco. Let's get you a look at traffic. We thank, by the way, Brad Dacus for being with us. I'm having a tough time today. I don't know what it is. Tongue-tied lips and everything else. Tune in to tomorrow night's show. We'll probably try to do the entire program in English or some facsimile thereof. <laughs> yeah, all these, we all have these days, right? You got a day at the office. Just not, you know, you're just not clicking on all eight cylinders. I was all right earlier today, and then I had one of these massive luncheons because, coincidentally, it is the birthday of uh, Wanda in the evenings, and of course our own Jordan Michaels. Yes, and our own Jordan Michaels. We were we were going to do a birthday cake, but then we thought the uh, fire inspector come in and say it's too dangerous with that many candles. She could have driven a drop right there, Jarrell. You missed it. <laughs> so we went out to lunch. At any rate, you didn't need to hear all that, but you do need to hear what's going on traffic-wise. Craig, shut up. Here's the latest Michael Bennett. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.